We're going to be looking at, we're entering into a new series, and we're going to introduce this series with the part of the prologue of John's Gospel. And we're not going to stay in John very long, one week. I want to introduce Advent by looking at these brief verses out of John chapter 1, tie it in with a little bit of the meaning of Advent and light in darkness, and then we're going to embark on a study of the Gospel of Luke. And so we'll be going through Luke, not just during Advent series, but much like what we did Romans, we'll be doing it for a long time, buckle up, and uh, we'll be breaking at different points of the year during the seasons, whether it's Easter or summertime or different things, and coming back to it. So that's what we're doing, and this morning we are beginning John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and then just simply verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And friends, this is the word of the Lord given by the triune God of love because he loves us. Well, this morning begins the time of the Christian year in the liturgical calendar known as Advent, which is also the beginning of the Christian year. So in a sense, while you are hugging your Georgia Bulldogs fan, I could say, take a look at your neighbor and wish them Happy New Year, because this is the church's new year. The liturgical or the church calendar begins at Advent. I have a pastor friend, his name is Joel Littlepage, and he puts it this way. He says, the Christian year or liturgical calendar is a communal pattern that forms us, that shapes us, year after year, to be a people of the story of our faith. Human beings are profoundly creatures fundamentally shaped by stories. Our conviction is that each of our lives will always be following someone's calendar and someone's story. It is just a question of whose calendar and whose story, what kind of narrative we are following. You know, we do this in our country, for example. Our country has a liturgical calendar. We have national holidays that form a liturgical calendar. Fourth of July, Memorial Day, Thanksgiving, they're all telling part of our national story. And the Christian year is no different. It is telling the story of the gospel, the story of our Christian faith. And in that sense, it is extremely important. We find in the Christian year that it begins with Advent, which is the story of anticipation. Now, I need to correct a common misconception. Many of us think of Advent as only the time of preparation for Christmas, that it's only the time of anticipation for the birth of Christ. 
The word Advent actually means to come or comings. And as such, we actually celebrate three distinct Advents. Yes, part of it is the preparation for Christmas, the anticipation of the birth of Christ. That's why I love in the carols, what child is this that laid to rest? We also anticipate the second coming of Jesus, his return at the very end of history in glory to put everything to rights. It's one of the reasons we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We pray, thy kingdom come. Advent is also a coming in that Jesus promises as we draw near to him, whether it's in prayer, whether it's through the word, whether it's we come to the Lord's Supper or the sacraments, when we're drawing near to Jesus, we are beseeching him, come to us, bring us healing, bring us renewal, bring us hope. And we are, in that sense, anticipating his coming to us. And so you, of course, have Advent, and then you have Christmas, which is the birth of Christ. You have Epiphany, which recounts the story of Jesus' early life and ministry. You have Lent through Easter, which focuses on the cross and the resurrection. So this beginning is the new year, the beginning of the church's calendar, the first Sunday of Advent. And there's a writer by the name of Fleming Rutledge who puts it very well when she talks about the tension of Advent. We've got the first coming, which for the people of the Old Testament, the church of the Old Testament, they were looking forward to. That's why we had the young people read today from Isaiah chapter 64. But from our perspective, we're in between these comings, aren't we? He's already come, and we're anticipating that he will come again. And so there's a tension in Advent where we look both backwards at the historical birth of Christ and forwards at the future coming of Jesus to consummate the kingdom of God. And Rutledge writes this. She writes, Advent is not for the faint of heart. It is not for sissies. To grasp the depth of the human predicament, one has to be willing to enter into the very worst. In a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. It can well be called the time between, because the people of God live in the time between, between the first coming of Christ incognito in the stable in Bethlehem and his second coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. In the time between, our lives are hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. Thus, Advent contains within itself the crucial balance of the now and the not yet that our faith requires. The disappointment, the brokenness, the suffering, and the pain that characterizes life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. And in that Advent tension, the church lives its life. So here's the question. If all of our lives, Advent will not end on Christmas Eve. All our lives are Advent. When we're in the middle of February, you are still in Advent, looking back and looking forward. How do we live in that tension? How do we live in that dynamic tension. We are to be a people utterly controlled by, gripped by, 
and committed to the story of and the narrative of God. That is to be the story, the narrative, that is to animate our very lives. So this morning, as we look at John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, we're going to be introduced to a concept, the concept of the Word. And the Word is called in Greek, the Logos. And we're going to learn two things concerning this Word, two things concerning this Logos. We're going to learn, first of all, a category-altering claim that is made concerning the Logos. And secondly, we are going to learn an incomprehensible power delivered by this Logos. Did you get that? A category-altering claim and an incomprehensible power. Look with me at verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, that word Logos is the, Greek, the word word. There is the Greek word Logos. And it says the Logos was with God, and in fact, the Logos was God. Now, this is one of the reasons why I had us read verse, only verse 14, because this is where it identifies it with the person of Jesus, so you know who the text is talking about, because it says the Word become flesh, and that should be an aha moment for us. We go, wait a second, I know who that is. Who became flesh? Well, it was Jesus Christ. So everything that is being talked about here in these opening verses are being spoken of about Jesus. This is all about Jesus. And it says, the Logos, the Word, the one who became flesh, was with God, and in fact, was God. Which leads us to another question. And that question is, who is God? Foundationally, fundamentally, how does he reveal himself? Because everything starts with the question of, who is God? Your conception of God will control how you relate to Him. So, for example, if you relate to Him as just a transcendent, far-off, distant power, it's going to be very difficult for you to, like, obey the great commandment that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How much love do you feel with somebody who doesn't draw near to you, who is not willing to be intimate with you, who's not vulnerable, who doesn't reveal himself. If God is only an unmoved mover, if God is a, or worse yet, a mean, stern, always disappointed in you ogre, now I'm going to tell you, love and serve him. And worship, it doesn't make sense. But, as the theologian Michael Reeves from the United Kingdom says, quite profoundly, he writes, yes, God is creator. God is sovereign, God is almighty, God is all-powerful, but the most foundational thing in God is not some abstract quality, but the fact that He is Father. Since God is before all things a Father and not primarily creator or ruler, all His ways are beautifully fatherly. John puts it in his first letter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. He says, God is love. Not just that God loves, but God is, meaning his very definition is fatherly love. Have you ever paid attention to the creeds that we say in our affirmation of faith? 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Then we say, we're not denying creation, we're not denying sovereignty, but we're relating to him, we're saying, first of all, he is a father. And if we ask the question, did you hear the text, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, what were they doing in the beginning? What were they doing? And the answer was loving. The Father was loving the Son. The Spirit was loving the Father. The Father was loving the Spirit. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, John chapter 17, verse 24, puts it this way. And this is amazing. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. This is his prayer for you and I, by the way. To see my glory that you've given me because, listen carefully to these words, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. In other words, before creation. Before anything, what was the triune God? One God in three persons doing? They were loving each other. They were sharing with each other. Love is essentially giving and other-centered, which makes the act of creation the very fact that God was expressing his love. He didn't create the world because he needed to. Did you think God was lonely or something? He created the world because of love. This tells us something. So when, we, when John introduces us to Jesus, and he introduces us to him as one who in the beginning was the reason for being, the point to living, what is he saying? He's saying he is it, he's the story, and he is love. Which means what? And maybe this is the most applic important application of all. That we are built for love that we are built for love. Is that how you relate to God? Do you relate to Him as love? Do you relate to Him as Father? I know many of us, I've heard this many times, I've done this many times. Let me try to make this as practical as I can. We're facing a difficulty, a trial, an affliction, medical, financial, relational, or whatever, and we're in need of comfort. We need to be comforted. We need, and what do we often say? We often say, God is in control. Now, that's a true statement, by the way. So I'm not encouraging us to stop saying it. That is a true statement. But I'd like it to be our second statement. I would like our first statement to control how we relate to the Father is, God is my Father who loves me. God's relating to me. Yes, God is in control, and he's orchestrating, and he's determining, and he's controlling all things according to fatherly tenderness, fatherly gentleness, fatherly wisdom. He knows better than we do. You do believe he's smarter than you, right? That means he knows better than you do what is best for you. This is a category-altering claim. That Jesus' story is the preeminent story. Not just your ticket to heaven. He's how to relate to God as Father. And that brings us to verses 3 and 4 where it says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life 
was the light of men. Again, look at this claim. All things were made through him. Nothing was made without him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He created us. He built us. He designed us. He knows how we work. This means that we find meaning. We find happiness. We find purpose. We find significance only in him. This can be highly controversial because this is exclusive. We don't find significance in family, in work, in achievements, in relationships, in possessions, in sports, in beauty. We don't find significance and purpose and happiness in these things. Are these wonderful gifts that God gives us? Absolutely. And we ought to be thankful for every one of them. But our meaning in life, happiness, what we're built for, which is love, is found only in this word, only in this logos. But second, there's more. Look at this incomprehensible power, this power of the logos. Look with me at verses 4 and 5 where it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, we're not doing a whole study on the Gospel of John. We're moving into Luke next week. But fascinate, sorry, preacher's occupational hazard here. John is absolutely fascinating in continually drawing a contrast between light and darkness. And you almost see the advent tension in that. That we live in the midst of the darkness with the presence of the light. That's why one commentator on this passage said, the entry of the Logos into the world, love come down, is described as light shining in the darkness. And notice the parallels with the book of Genesis. How does the book of Genesis begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Very interesting, and then you get to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you have the presence of darkness. And so you have original creation is what? The work of God, speaking through His Word, bringing light into the darkness. So you have to realize the darkness is a concept, especially to the Hebrew mindset, the ancient Near Eastern mindset, darkness doesn't just mean blackness. Darkness meant chaos, turmoil, upheaval, discord, and light penetrates that darkness. So if darkness is always thought of as turmoil and chaos and disorder, what did light do? It brings, you have light coming out of darkness. And then what is Jesus doing? Here's the word, become flesh, the logos, entering into the world, and you have light entering darkness. You have the beginning of a new creation. Verse 5 says the light shines in this tumultuous, turmoil, chaotic environment that the Bible depicts as darkness. The light shines in this hostile environment, and here's our ultimate hope. The darkness cannot overcome it. As one commentator put it, the verb used here has a double significance. One, to grasp with the mind and to comprehend, 
and two, to grasp with the hand, and so to try to attempt to overcome, seize, or destroy. Both ideas are at work in John, but the second meaning seems foremost here. John suggests that the darkness tries to grasp, tries to seize, tries to lay hold of, tries to defeat the light, and will not be able to. The light will overcome. The darkness will fail. How will it fail? The darkness tries to overcome. The darkness tries to seize. The darkness tries to grasp the light and be victorious and will fail. The answer is the cross. And this, this is why Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3 for the church to have strength to comprehend what is the height and the depth and the breadth and the length and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We all think we understand God's love. Paul is saying God's love is beyond comprehension. It is so powerful. Love is the force that can transform or change the world. How does it do that? Through the cross. Very interesting, Matthew describes the crucifixion this way. Matthew says, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land. Again, darkness, there was chaos, disorder, turmoil. Uncreation is the way he's describing it until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, screaming, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? You realize what is going on here and why this is incomprehensible, an incomprehensible power and incomprehensible love? Jesus, who was never created, he was begotten by the Father. But what is he doing here? He is willingly, voluntarily, obediently, and sacrificially submitting himself to a sort of uncreation. This is why when we sing, come thou long expected Jesus, and we go, he got a taste of sadness so that we could experience gladness. He experienced death, real death, a sort of uncreation so that we could be and experience a new creation. He experienced darkness, disorder, turmoil, chaos, in order to bring about new creation. The darkness did everything in its power to destroy this Logos, but it could not overcome the Logos. That is the power of the Logos and the power of the cross. Again, Fleming Rutledge reminds us, God submitted himself to the very worst that human sin could do. As our representative, as our substitute, he comes under his own judgment, his own wrath. When in Isaiah 64, the prayer is made to rend the heavens and come down and pour out wrath, God did that in the person of Jesus Christ for you as the greatest expression of love that there will ever be. That's where on the cross, holiness and love embrace. Holiness and love kiss. Rutledge says, as our representative, he came under his own curse, his own judgment, and on the third day he was raised victorious over evil and death. This really happened. No one made it up. 
How did the Logos, how did Jesus overcome the darkness? Through death, through weakness, through service, through love. Being absolutely true to his nature, in total self-giving of himself to the powers of darkness, and so light wins. He is the ultimate light who shone in the darkness, and the darkness didn't overcome him. And he's left the light in the advent darkness of the world and death and decay. He has left the light in the brokenness that we see in our communities, in Lake Oconee, in Greensboro, in Eatonton, and in the world. He has left a light. And do you know what that light is called? It's called the church. It's called the church. Jesus said, we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And friends, if you hear this message and you hear, here goes Jeff again, He's telling us, get busy, get on mission. You've missed the whole point of the message. Because do you know what this message is? Friends, I want us to see how loved we are. And again, as Michael Reeves said, I quoted him earlier, as he says, mission is simply the overflow of love in our hearts and in our lives. Yeah, if all you hear is go do mission, you're going to get exhausted. You're going to get burnt out. You're going to get tired. But do you know what I want us to hear? You're the recipient. If you're trusting in Christ, if you're relating to God as Father, if you realize through Christ, it's not automatic, but through trusting in Christ, you're adopted as his son or daughter. You're his child. It's why John, it's interesting to read his gospel and read his letters at the same time. In his first letter, he says, Behold, see, cultivate, fall in love with Behold what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And it's almost like he knows we're not going to believe it. He's like, uh, you're not buying it. And he says, and so we are. Mission is simply the overflow of love in our lives. The more you realize how loved you are and let that overflow, it has to overflow in love towards God and towards others. And that's what mission is. Mission is simply we love others with the love Christ has given us. That's what I want us to do. I want us to receive love and go love. It's as simple as that. And that's how we shine our light in the darkness. That's how we proclaim and embody this message, this gospel message, this Advent message. The best news that Jesus is the world's true 